Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of Orion's Belt, a games industry podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Lance Tallman. And I'm one of your hosts, Connor Ball. And today we're going to be talking about how rules relate to gameplay experience. Yeah, so we we struggled with the title for this one a little bit because we wanted to talk about rules, but we weren't entirely sure if it needed to be about like designing good rules or if it was something a little bit more, which is kind of what we landed on. Yeah, we came to some some interesting conclusions, and we'll share them with you soon. Yeah, Connor and I had like a two-hour discussion while writing the outline for this, and now it has evolved into, I don't know, a relatively short outline. So hopefully we'll be able to take our, our big discussion and condense it into some some like game design snacks, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Okay, so our overview for this episode is we're just talking about three things. How do rules relate to games? How do... How does the presentation of rules affect games? And then how do you design a strong rule system? And that's a little bit, it's a little bit more along the lines of how do you design strong rules or when you run into problems, how do you solve rules, rules related design problems? If that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah. And basically we're going to first define for you what or how do rules relate to games? What does, what does it mean to have rules in a game? So we touched on this a little bit in one of our previous episodes. I can't even remember. When did we talk about constraints versus rules? I can't remember. Don't know. There's at one point, and you'll just have to listen to every episode to find out. <laughs> um, so we talk about the difference between constraints versus rules. And to illustrate those differences, the best thing to look at are video games and board games. And that's really the context where we're talking about these two things anyways. So constraints are essentially immutable things that cannot be changed and that you are forced to operate under so in a video game like valorant for example so like our first two episodes of the podcast we talk about valorant you can't double jump you can't triple jump you can't jump like 15 times in the middle of the air no matter how hard you try without like hacking the game or changing the code there is no way in the game to break the rules essentially and that's because these aren't rules per se they're constraints they are exactly what um you have to do in order to play the game exactly so you can't change them they are just things that exist in the game world if you think about league of legends for example you have to pick five characters on each team that's just a constraint with that said a rule would be if a character goes bot lane mid lane or top lane that's something that can change Um, but board games are a much better example of rules these are deliberate things that can change um Although that would compromise the gameplay experience if you change them. You want to talk about Monopoly, Connor? Yeah. So when you get together to play Monopoly, maybe it's family game night, friend game night, whatever it is, you come together and you have to agree on playing rules of Monopoly. And this is why there's nothing that's preventing you from physically moving your piece and placing it on any square that you want to. Totally. You could say, okay, it's my turn. You could roll the dice. You get a seven and you can move 12 spaces. You are able to do that. It's against the rules, but there's nothing stopping you. And if everyone else said, okay, fine, cool. There you go. You move 12 spaces, even though you rolled an eight. 
Exactly. And so in a game like Valorant, you can't jump 15 times, even if you want to. Even if everybody in the game is like, yeah, you can jump 10 times. You, you can't. You can't jump 10 times. Right? There's no way to do that. But that's where rules and constraints differ. And we've kind of already illustrated this in that previous episode that apparently neither Connor nor I can remember. So you can go back to that one um, if you need more of a, a comprehensive idea of what those are. And so when we when you break it down and for the purposes of this discussion when we're talking about games especially like physical games or like reality games um, and board games rules are the games themselves i mean and even in valorant constraints are the is the game right the game is built up by these constraints and rules that inevitably create the gameplay experience um which is what we'll be talking about yeah in monopoly if you were just able to go to every any space you wanted and you could buy any property for any amount of money and you could take any amount of money from the bank whenever you'd want well then there's no game there's nothing there's no goals there's no obstacles there's nothing so you have to come together and say okay let's play this game and follow these rules in order to have a fun time the rules although they're rules make it an enjoyable experience and so games are rules they they are intertwined with one another Exactly. So in game studies, we call this the idea of the magic circle. To come together and play a game, everyone has to agree to an arbitrary set of rules um, and create this experience that they all communally abide by. And they choose to abide by it because in doing so, everyone is going to have fun. And that's how the game, the game sphere, the game circle, the magic circle is created. And this is usually pretty understood. And most of the time, you don't really have a problem with people not following the rules or not wanting to follow the rules. That's the whole point of getting together to do games. So great, cool, you're following the rules, you're having a good time. The problem is, is that when you get into more complicated board games, more complex board games, there, there's a lot more rules, and a lot more things you have to follow. And that means it's harder to follow. So even if you go into a game night or playing some board game with the full intention of following all the rules, so that you can play the game made by whoever and have a good time, you might accidentally not follow all of the rules. And that is kind of what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, so I mean, the whole idea is that in a system of made of rules and not constraints, it's possible to make mistakes. And this is why, just like Connor said, good rule systems are important, right? We as humans, we have a finite memory. We make mistakes all the time. We're not these computers that can hypothetically do everything right that's a whole ethics debate um and then we're exactly like connor said we're going to make mistakes on accident we can inadvertently break these rules yeah even if we're not trying to break the rules we can break these rules and, and thus, sometimes you know, it's more fun to yeah. break the rules sometimes it is more fun and at the end of the day we'll say this throughout the this episode at the end of the day if you're having a good time with your friends playing a board game and you're not following the rules that's great that's you know do it i mean i'm sure i do that in uno there's so many different rules out there and sometimes you're just going off doing something stupid Getting but if you're having crazy. a good time then you're achieving what you wanted to achieve but at the end of the day generally the closer that you're abiding to these rules then the closer you are to achieving the gameplay experience that was designed by the designers of the game yeah i think connor and i are going to operate under the assumption and we're going to work under the assumption that a good gameplay experience is the underlying point of success for any game they're just trying to achieve a good gameplay experience and make everybody have fun and experience their game in a, in a positive light right so if you're breaking the rules but still having fun you're still achieving that 
good gameplay experience. But as Connor said, following the rules is usually the best way to get a good gameplay experience. Yeah. And so we're going to go over first. Okay, you've got a set of rules. This is what defines your game. This is what makes it a game. This is what makes it have objectives, obstacles, winners, losers. How do you want to present these rules? Because that's this is probably a more simple strategy than the one we have following. Um, but it's still very important. So we're just going to go over what's the best way to present your rules so then it's easy to first accumulate yourself to the to the game. Yeah, so so for video games, we're we're really going to be talking about this in the in the context of board games because in video games it's usually easier to like grok what's going on, like you're you can kind of just figure stuff out in the moment. Um and so uh, for board games, that's usually a lot harder, and it's way more standardized for a board game to come with a manual to teach you how to play, and that's what we're talking about when we're talking about presentations. So in regard regarding rules presentations, first of all, there are tons of ways rules are presented, but we broke it down into five categories, um, five of these five, which we just enjoy. These are things Connor and I personally think make rule books better. I'm sure there are others. We just haven't included them because of the sheer mass of, you know, rules presentation things. So we broke it down into rules references, quick start guides, layouts, like nice layouts, simplistic reference cards, and then gameplay videos and walkthroughs. Um, do you want to start with a rules reference, Connor, what that is and how yeah, it benefits so a game? A rules reference is usually a, a booklet um, that is kind of the coherent, all-encompassing book includes all of the nitty-gritty rules right and this is important because a lot of the times when you're designing a complex game there's a ton of interactions that are going to occur and you obviously can't address all of them in a concise short little list so you have to make sure that if these do come up in someone's game that they have the ability the tool to say okay this is what we need to do here. This is how the game is supposed to work. They're allowed to go through it and it's comprehensive. So they're never left, you know, unanswered. Right. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the time you're going to run into a situation when you're playing a board game where you're just not really sure what to do or like what the game condition is to resolve something. So you just go to the rules reference, look it up and figure out what it is. Distinctly rules references are not rule books. They're usually, they're more like an appendix for yes. everything you can find mm -hmm. regarding certain interactions in a game. And usually complex board games are the ones that really need this because the, the interactions are harder. But even like mid-range board games like Betrayal in the House at the Hill um, or Betrayal at the House on the Hill. I'm looking at the board behind Connor's head to read the name. Um, that That's more of a mid-range board game that's not super complex, but there's enough weird interactions that it would still benefit from a rules reference. Because I don't think it does have a rules reference, does it? I don't think so. It doesn't. And there's been a few times, I personally love the game, I think it's great, but there's a few times, especially with some of the haunts that have like, oh, no one's controlling this enemy, it just is supposed to do something. There's a few interactions where you're like, oh, I don't know actually what is supposed to happen here. And if there's no way where you can figure that out, it's kind of like, well, then what should we do? And I would argue it's almost like for most of the cases. So those cases arrive ra rarely. And when they do arise, um, most of them are actually answered in the rule book. But it's the same thing if you're like reading a massive school textbook and you need to know the definition of one vocab word. Right. It doesn't matter that it's it. in the book. Right. Mm -hmm. If there's no good way to look for it, 
then, then it might, might as well, as well, not well be there. exactly as well not be there. it might as well not be there and so that's why these rules references are really nice because they're essentially like a glossary or appendix that you can just find the rule you need or the rules interaction you need and solve the problem super quickly so at the end of the day you can just keep playing the game exactly um next one is quick start guides these i think are really helpful especially if you just want to hop right into a game obviously when you get into these really complex board games the rules can get very lengthy, very com complex, and sometimes you just want to hop in. And sometimes it's even better if you just kind of start playing. And once you have the general idea down, it'll kind of come to you naturally. And that's kind of what quick start guides are trying to achieve. Absolutely. Like, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. It's just teaching you the rules as you play. And I mean, a lot of the times, I would say actually pretty much always, a board game will be better if you just have somebody you know teach you the game rather than reading the rules. But when that can't happen, the next best thing is to have a quick a quick start guide to be that other person teaching you how to play the game. Um, usually what they'll do is they'll abstract away a lot of the main rules until later in the guide. That way they can just teach you exactly what you need to know on a turn-by-turn -turn basis so you can figure everything out as you go along. Yeah, and a little side note, it actually is kind of interesting because there are a few of our games have in the rule book say that it's recommended that at least like one player reads through the comprehensive listing of rules and then the other players can just go through the uh, quick start guide and there you go. And so I guess maybe we should have that as a bullet point is having someone who knows the game is part of the rules presentation. Yeah, that is always, I mean, that will always be a bonus. And there's kind of two different ways you can do quick start guides. There's the really thick ones that are just the rule book, but put into a quick start guide format. And then there's the ones that uh, kind of abstract everything away. Like I would argue that Roots, quick start guide abstracts a lot of the inherent st uh, strategy and mechanics away uh, and lets you just play the first four turns very explicitly um but then you kind of have to delve into the rules reference and stuff of that uh that sort once you finish those first four turns but on the bright side root has a really really comprehensive rules reference that makes that easy oh yeah for sure so the next thing is layout, and this one's pretty pretty easy, uh, and we're not going to touch on it a ton because Connor and I aren't graphic designers, um, but we do have a good sense of you know what looks good and what doesn't, especially in regard to you know board game rule layouts and <laughs> mechanics like that. So for layout, all we mean is when you're designing a rule book, you just want it to look appealing, right? You don't want massive paragraphs or anything. Maybe you want images breaking up some stuff, fun text. Uh, one thing in regards to layout that we thought was worth mentioning are designer notes. Um, those are usually really, really great at just giving insight to the game. It's not really a rules thing. Yeah, it doesn't super relate to what we're talking about, but I do think, I guess, in terms of designing your rule book, I think it's something that's really cool to include. I remember when I first, when we first bought Scythe and I was reading through the rule book, you know, they had these little green boxes that said designer notes. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is just really interesting to see, you know, why they made certain decisions and give you insight or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I think they're they're super valuable at teaching strategy kind of on the go or giving players an idea of, of what's going on in that regard. But again, layout's a little bit more obvious, so we'll, we'll move on. The next thing is simplistic reference cards. These are also pretty simple. Usually a lot of complex games will have, I don't know, think, think of a game like Magic the Gathering or a game even like Root where you have different phases of your turn they'll have like a reference card that will just list all those phases and maybe like, oh, this is like one action you do in each of them or something like that. Those are usually really helpful. I mean, it kind of depends on the player you are if you need them, um, but they're nice in that regard. Yeah, they're nice. I personally don't think that they're that 
useful, at least I guess for me, I think what's better is that usually if a reference card is going over kind of the more core mechanics of the game, you usually get that under your, you know, your hands pretty quickly and then you don't really need the rules uh, reference or the, the rules reference card. Um, so I kind of quickly find them to be unnecessary. Could be just because I'm usually the one who kind of reads through the rule book and everything, but I think it's nice to have, but they come they kind of become unnecessary after your first game or two. Totally. And I think where you're going with that is it's even better if you can have a simplistic rules card that reminds you of all like the niche interactions with the exactly. rules. That's a lot more useful. Or even better if some if you can just ask somebody that question and then they can say, Oh yeah, this is how that's supposed to work. Because it's hard to, you know, fit all those niche interactions on a small little reference card. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so the last thing is gameplay videos and walkthroughs. This is kind of standard these days. Like if influencers review a board game or if you just have one on your channel or like your Kickstarter page, whatever it is, uh, explaining the game or even just showing the components, these this can just bolster the, the usability of your rules, make the game a little bit easier to comprehend. Oh, yeah. And we'll probably bring this game up uh, as an example. Uh, it's called Gloomhaven. I think it's still number one in BoardGameGeek.com one of the it's it's definitely like top 10 board top games 10 of board all games time. at least um anyways it has crazy crazy rules probably the most complex game that we have and i remember that the video that they posted the uh, creators posted online was extremely helpful so especially if your game can be really complex videos can be a really good strategy absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and i would i would say yeah especially in regards to rules um those videos can really alleviate some of that tension uh but yeah, so that's pretty much everything for presentation. It's pretty straightforward, right? You want to provide users with a, not users, sorry, players with a variety of different um, ways to to glean information about your game. And the more ways you can do it and the more efficient you are, and sometimes the more specific you are with a bunch of different books, the easier it is for them to find the book that relates to their need at the current time. But here's the problem is that even if you present your rules in the best fashion possible, it can still not be good enough. And this is where we get to the meat of our discussion today, I think. And it's just designing a strong rule system. And as I said kind of at the beginning, it's like fixing these problems that arise when you have you have a really good idea for a game um, and you don't want to compromise that idea, but you also need to fix these problems that arise with your rules. Yeah, because like we said, a game is rules. Rules is what define the game. If the rules are hard to convey to the players, then they're not going to have a good gameplay experience. So what we're trying to discuss here is that what are ways that you can do to make it so they do translate well? and that they do have a good gameplay experience without feeling like you have to change the rules of your game and thus change your game. Because optimally, you'd like to have the game, whatever your original idea was, you'd like it to stay the same, but still make it so players can enjoy playing it. Absolutely, right. You want the game experience to be as close to what you envisioned as possible, um, but sometimes you have to make concessions, and we're going to talk about all of that right now. So... You want the rules of your game to be streamlined, right? You want to ensure that your core rules core, core rules are smooth and that they're represented um, substantially. They're easy to perform in regards to usability. And because of that, um, there, there's a lot of, lot of things that go on. So a core rule would be something like a turn phases of a game like Magic, right? Okay, I'm going to be 
drawing a card every single turn, right? I'm going to be untapping all of my cards at, at the beginning of my turn, right? Or something in root, okay, at the start, I have birdsong every single turn. Like, my phase order is going to be the same. Usually, even though that's different for every faction, there's some, like, big overall thing that is very core. Uh, I can only have five cards, or what is it? What's the hand limit in root? Five. Yeah, I can only have five cards in my hand. Like, that is a, a thing that will just, like, persist throughout the whole game. Yeah, and usually these rules are going to be pretty easy to remember, right? We talked about earlier how even if you're trying to follow all the rules, you could you could be missing out on some. And if you're missing out on some, you're not getting the true gameplay experience that the designers wanted to provide for you. But fortunately, with these core rules, usually you're not going to forget them. And so that means these rules can be a little more complex or, you know, you don't have to worry about forgetting about them. And so I'll just take Monopoly. This is a simplified example, but I think it does a good job explaining it. A core on a core mechanic, right? A core rule of Monopoly is that on your turn you roll the dice and you move that many spaces. Great. I'd probably say that for the most part, if you've played Monopoly before, and then someone asks you, like, what do you do on your turn in Monopoly? You'd say, oh, you roll the dice, right? So it's pretty easy to remember that. So what you want to do is you want to make sure that these core mechanics are easy to use, and you know, easy to perform. And so, for example, this would be really terrible in Monopoly if instead of saying, okay, roll these two dice on your turn, it said, okay, choose a number between 2 and 12 at random. Well, that that doesn't really seem – that would be really hard to do, right? If they didn't give you the dice, the usability of that rule would be very, very difficult to perform. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what Connor means in terms of usability is – the the rules need to be like very easy to understand and easy to perform but not at the expense of complexity if you have complexity in your rule system it should be here because you're going to do it be doing it so often right yeah and so with that said even though it's a complex mechanic it doesn't need to be like artificially complex we talk about randomness a lot i mean you're a programmer connor you know this we talk about randomness and randomness a lot in the sense that randomness is not actually complexity it's usually just like pseudo complexity or complexity for complexity's sake right like usually in a lot of games not always but making something random doesn't really make a more interesting choice it usually makes a choice less interesting um but it gives the appearance that it's more interesting because oh who knows what it'll be right and so if you are thinking about monopoly even though okay rolling a dice might be really easy your whole turn on monopoly overall is pretty pretty easy in terms of like okay i'm gonna move and if i land in a space i need to pay unless it's my property where monopoly gets crazy is like okay like do i have to upgrade my hotel now or something like whatever i mean monopoly is a pretty simple game but you know that's more of a nuanced decision that is not part of the core gameplay i would argue at least oh yeah no i, I would agree and so that's just when we say that ensure that the um core rules are smooth that's just kind of what we mean um, but now we're going to be talking about fringe rules, and these are rules that don't come up as frequently as some of the other rules, right? So if we're using our Monopoly example, <laughs> one that I actually think I don't quite understand the rules for still is the fact that you can like mortgage properties and then you get value, oh, yeah. but you can't, I don't know, I think you can't earn money if somebody steps on your space. 
full disclosure, I haven't played. I hate Monopoly. I mean, my game sucks, <laughs> but and I haven't played in a long time, so I have no idea how mortgages work. But anyways, that's an example <laughs> of something that you're not going to do every single for turn. For sure, for sure. Um, I mean, that's fine. Obviously, your game's not going to have all your mechanics be you know core to the game, and that's what makes it fun. And you have these options that come up rarely, so then you know you can use them when you need to, not all the time. But with these rules, and just like an example of how we don't really know how it works, you want to make sure that these rules are remembered. Because usually, even though they're fringe rules, we're calling them fringe rules as in you don't perform them as frequently, they're still important to the game, right? If anything, they're more important to the game because that's what adds a lot of the variety and maybe the decision making or whatever it is. And if that's the case, you want to make sure that it's easy for these players to remember those rules. Because if they don't, then you're losing out on that aspect of your game. You're losing out on that, oh, you know, this is a really cool decision point that you're going to make, you know, every once in a while, which makes it kind of fun when it comes up. If they can't remember it and they forget about it and therefore don't consider it, well, that sucks. Totally. Um, I think episode five is our root episode. Um, and in, in the root episode, we talk about the Vagabond class, which is this class that is totally by itself, um, whatever. It It's like special fringe rule is that it's nimble and it doesn't, it can't control clearings and it also can move as if other clearings, as if the clearing wasn't controlled, right? And that's something that doesn't come, like movement you'll do all the time, but that special ability has a little bit more nuance than you'd think because, okay, I need, if I control this clearing, maybe I get some sort of benefit if I'm like a regular faction. And maybe you set yourself up to do that and then you're like, oh, wait, I'm the vagabond. I can't control the clearing, right? And so to mitigate some of these issues, there's a bunch of different strategies that um, good rule systems and good games with rule systems employ to to make sure that that doesn't happen. These fringe rules are adequately addressed or like ever present in your mind, if that yeah. makes sense. And so we want to we want to make it clear that when you find like a, when you have these fringe rules, you're adding these rules to the game that are adding complexity and variation. Um, but maybe you come across a problem, maybe in playtesting, whatever it is, where you're like, oh, this is kind of hard to remember. You know, the answer, the first answer is to not either remove it or make it simpler or make it less imperative because then you're just, you're taking away from your game and that's not what you want to do. So we're going to be talking about, yeah, the alternatives that maybe you can try and employ to make it so they won't forget these rules and they can still be in the game. And before you get to that, Connor, just real quick to, to kind of summarize the, the difference between core rules and fringe rules, I want to talk about this spectrum where before you get to these alternatives and you need to change things, you want to look at, okay, if if a rule is, needs to be more complex, uh, then it should be more closer to a core rule. Whether that means it's repeated more or it's more visible in the game, then that's where more complex stuff can be. If it needs to be a fringe rule and you don't really want it to occur that much, it should be a little bit less complex, right? And that's exactly for these reasons we we kind of already talked about sorry i just wanted to mention that oh yeah and also that you know that's that scale has different values depending on if you really want a super complex game obviously your friend rules are still going to totally. be complex yeah so it depends on what game you're trying to make but generally i think that's a good rule to follow when you're looking at who's going to be playing your game and you know if it's going to have a good experience absolutely so when when talking about exactly what connor was saying uh these like alternatives that we're trying to figure out there's a few different things that we wanted to touch on specifically for some really great alternatives when you're looking at a rule, a problem arises. 
there's this, you know, maybe some like mechanical overhead. Oh, this is just so clunky, blah, blah, blah. Should I simplify it? We're going to argue that you shouldn't simplify it first. That shouldn't be the first step. Maybe yeah. if, you know, a bunch of things happen, it's like, okay, this is, I'm just, when we were talking about that randomness example, yeah, choosing a random number in your head between one and 17, yeah, that should be simplified. Give them a dice, right? Yeah, give them a dice, yeah. <laughs> or a die for that matter, but yeah. Um. So instead, the first alternative we talk about is creating conflicting mechanics for the purposes of reinforcing existing mechanics. And what I just said probably sounds super paradoxical, especially in the context of everything we're talking about. Um, but the game Scythe, which we did a deep dive on, uh, does this really, really well. And so what, what they do in Scythe is a lot of the faction special abilities are just obvious rules exceptions. Or like they deliberately break the rules in very simple ways. So when you look at the faction ability, you're like, oh, that should, that I can do this here, which means I normally can't do this. And do you want to expound on that a little bit, Connor? Yeah, so... I'll go into an example. If you want to know more about the game size, check out our episode. Great game. Awesome game. We talk about it a lot. Um, but anyways, one, I'll just, I'll just give you guys an example. When, when you're taking actions in Scythe, you're not allowed to take the same action again. So that means on one turn, if you take action A, on your next turn, you cannot take action A. You have to take action B, C, or D. And then on the following turn, then you could take action A again. This is an integral part to Scythe. This is totally integral to the balance of the game. But also, let's say, you know, can just kind of picked up the game after not playing it for a month or two, didn't really look at the rule books. You're like, oh, I remember how to play. This is something you could easily forget. Definitely. Really, really easily forget. And that would make the game completely different. That would make the gameplay experience completely different from what the designer wanted it to be. So what they do is that one of the factions that you can play as, all of the factions have special abilities. And one of the factions has a special ability that says you can take the same action more than once. So Basically like, negating that entire negating rule. Negating that entire rule, right? So when you're maybe, you know, going through the different factions you can pick or somebody gets that faction, when their special ability is I can take the same action more than once, then you know, okay, well, that must mean that usually if that's their special ability, usually you can't take the same action more than once. There you go. Now you're reminded of the fact that you can't take the same action more than once. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this is... The nice thing about this, too, is it's a really clean way to do it, I think, because it, it reinforces it in a smart way. You break, you're break, you breaking the rules or bending the rules just so you know this is, like, the right way to do something. Um, and so Root does something a little bit similar uh, and in a, in a slightly different way and in a similar way as well. So what Root does is they have game boards for every one of these asymmetrical factions. Similar, similar to Scythe, if you want to learn more about Root, check out Episode 5. It's a great Great game. One of my favorite board games easily. And when looking at Root, these faction boards are integral to the game. Like they are essentially what you're looking at for 90% of the game because they have all of your actions on them, all of your faction abilities, a lot of your tokens like rest on them. And so on these, there's a bunch of really useful information. They've almost made, in addition to having these reference, like tiny reference cards, the simplistic like one-off cards, a lot of the reference information is also on your faction. In fact, I think all of your faction reference information is either on the front or back of this faction board. And this is a great way to drive home mechanics that would otherwise be forgotten or lost in kind of, you know, the drudgery of playing a complex game. And so, for example, for that same vagabond thing, okay, I got to remember to, you know, I can't control a clearing because I'm only one piece. 
on the Vagabond game board, it says nimble can, you know, can only cannot control a clearing and can move as if a clearing wasn't controlled or something to that effect. Um, and that's super, super advantageous and a really another clean way to kind of implement this. Oh yeah. Because like I said, it's almost like, it's almost like the way root does it. It's like the reference card plus because you're forced to use the board. You have to use the board because each faction has, you know, items or tokens or whatever, and you place them on the board. And it's also designed really well so that if you have any questions or like maybe as you're following it, like a reference card is, okay, this is what I do first. This is what I do next. This is what I do next. It almost has a little like text or side notes. says like, oh, just by the way, you're not allowed to do this. Or, or you can also do this if you wanted to. And it's just a really, really clean way to keep those fringe rules present uh, and just remind the players. Yeah, I would say the user flow of the boards are really, really yeah. well designed in that in that regard. Um and then similar to Scythe, which we just talked about, a lot of these ideas, uh, the reason the Vagabond one is kind of easy to remember once you start playing the game and looking at uh, looking at these references is because that's usually something that doesn't happen. Every other faction in the game, with some exceptions, has to will control a clearing if they're the most pieces and has to consider clearing control when moving. But since the Vagabond doesn't, it's a little bit easier to remember. Yeah. Um those are kind of the big, the two big alternative ways, alternative strategies that we came up with. That's definitely not all of them. Oh, definitely not. Um, there's a ton of ways to do it. And the general strategy is that, is there a way you can incorporate rules into your game or remind players of rules or, you know, without having to change them drastically? Because like we said, if you have to ever alter these rules, then you're altering the game and you don't want to do that. If you have an idea for a game, you want to try and make it so that game is as close to the gameplay experience as possible. And we're talking in direct relation to maintaining like your design vision and your creative vision for the game. Obviously, there are a lot of times you'll design a rule and it's just inefficient. Like you should you should change it to fix some sort of issue. But usually that's going to be a lot more superficial or like abstract of a problem than like a core meaty component of the game where your first inclination might be, oh, I should just simplify this or I should change it, completely overhaul it. And so we're going to urge you to look for these alternatives yeah. uh, and ways to kind of explain away those problems. And then and then you can say, OK, I tried. I looked for alternatives. It still didn't work. You can at least, you know, have the peace of mind that it just wasn't going to work. It was too complicated. You know, you took a different route. Absolutely. And so now we move, guys, oh my God, I, I, we're, we're back to our question for Connor, our Connor question. Um, it's been a while. It's I'm, been, I think episode two was actually the last time we did the Connor question. Edge, I'm not going to lie. Um, and so this is, you know, just our big esoteric question for the day um, that we'll, we'll both answer, but it's called a Connor question because he'll answer first. Um, so Connor, why do you want a good gameplay experience? Like why why are gameplay experiences or why is, why is a gameplay experience the the thing to go after when designing a game and then tangentially maybe in contrast to that why do you also want to preserve the vision of your game like your creative direction yeah so well it's really funny because i actually when we were creating the outline and just you know talking about this i was talking i was saying that oh you want to mold the gameplay experience to the vision of your game i was like that's what you want to be doing and then lance says no, they they teach us the exact opposite in, you know, games and whatnot. I said, oh, I guess that makes <laughs> sense. And after thinking about it, 
the gameplay experience really is what the game is, right? And that's because there are rules and not constraints, right? At the end of the day, if the people playing your game are, you know, enjoying themselves, laughing with their friends, having a good time, having strategic options and, you know, comebacks or whatever it is, if that's achieved, then you should basically say, okay, I consider this a success, right? Totally. And so you want to do that in a way that's unique and has interesting mechanics and everything. But at the end of the day, regardless of what your game is, that's what you're trying to achieve. The ways in which you achieve it, how you achieve it, that's where the game design components really come in. But that's what you want to be doing. So, yes, that's you want to do that 100%. But on the other hand, I do think that it's important to remain true to your game vision sure and the reason for that is because even if you let's say you were you know making a game and you sacrificed a bunch for your game vision to make a really good gameplay experience okay that's great you made a good good gameplay experience you achieved the goal but okay how unique is it how true is it to what you wanted it to be the most the more closely related your gameplay experiences with your game idea or vision, then I personally think you're going to have a more unique gameplay experience. It's easy to get a good gameplay experience with a broken down, simple game. I think I'd say I would say. And so to, to kind of clarify this, especially in our conversation that we had before recording, Connor's really talking about this in relation. I mean, and you can correct me if I'm wrong to complex games. Like you shouldn't make, and this ties into exactly what we just told you. You shouldn't make these simplistic concessions at the expense of, or sorry, for, to, in order to gain maybe a better user experience all the time, right? Or yeah, gameplay experience. That's that correct. Yeah. And so what you're advocating for is a lot of the time, it makes more sense to stick to your creative vision. Maybe it's harder to learn the game. Maybe that barrier to entry is a little bit higher, but all in all, in doing that, you're creating you know, something that you're really proud of and maybe it's more of a nuanced experience, something that, you know, you got to put more work in to learn it, but as a result, it is, excuse me, more more unique and something of the sort. Is that kind of what you're, you're getting yes, at? Yes, that is. Right, and so for me, right, I'm a game dev. It's it's interesting to think about all of the, I, I immediately go to all of the ancillary factors, which, I don't know, maybe that's not norm, normal for most, you know, creative game developers. But for me, I'm like, okay, well, you know, if the game doesn't sell, then how am I going to fund the next game, right? If the game goes on market and nobody buys it, like that's a big problem. If nobody likes my game, like if I'm the only one who likes my game, I would be really heartbroken. But I know a lot of developers are like, no, I make this for my my own enjoyment, right? And if other people like it, that's amazing. Like that's perfect. And, you know, I design games to, you know, share stories, create experiences, etc. And I want other people to interact with them even even if they don't like them at least they're interacting with it and i'm getting that reciprocity so that's it's just a really interesting kind of i don't know dichotomy that you and i you have in that regard because i think i would argue from a success standpoint what you want to go for is simplistic mechanics to make your game more accessible right but sometimes accessibility is not always good and that's something that's, you know, sometimes hard for me to, to realize that making a game more accessible, easier to learn, can make it a lot more granular, formulaic, and as a result, not as much fun. Right. So, maybe yeah, you could say that maybe it's harder to succeed, right, if you're kind of playing to your game rather than to the gameplay experience. But it's a more impressive success if you can for pull sure. it off. For sure. 
If you're kind of just playing to the gameplay experience, yeah, it can be successful. Yeah, it can be a really good time. You know, you achieved the goal, but okay, great. What about it? So definitely it's interesting. It's things to think about. I think it's a balance uh, like anything is, but I really do think that you need to make sure that your game, whatever idea you have, you want to stick close to it. Absolutely. Cause that's, what's going to, that is what is going to result in unique, interesting and just enjoyable products, you know, if done correctly or, or whatnot. Yeah. So that's kind of all we have. This is probably our shortest episode yet. Um, but I think a really good one. I think we kind of covered the ground we needed to and discussed all of all of the good stuff. So we'll be back next week with another episode. There will be a bonus episode coming at some point in the future. I don't want to say soon because then we're, we'll get into the, the scythe problem where yeah. we keep promising it every week <laughs> and then it never comes. Um, but we're going to be talking about voice acting in games. And I'll be sitting down with um, another game developer uh, who is in that in that sphere and that'll that'll be interesting so that'll be coming relatively soon um but next week we will be back me and connor to talk about some some amazing stuff so thank you and we'll talk to you next time